Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 24. Today we will be reading Book 7, Chapters 5 through 7 in the Ascension edition of the book. If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast Godsplaining. There you'll find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find Godsplaining with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplaining.org. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. So as we're carrying on in book seven, we're going to take up some of the same questions, the same themes that Augustine has been has been looking at so far. We're going to continue with the question of the cause of evil. Remember, the sort of premise here is that if evil is not created by God and God is good, then where is it that evil comes from? Also, the sort of question of the perversity of the will. Um, you know, so if, if it's us who are the cause of evil, then how is it you know, made for the good that we choose against the good. Here, Augustine also refutes the teachings of astrologers and turns again to the Neoplatonic writings. Um, and he begins to draw some conclusions or make the observation that there's some similarities shared between the Neoplatonists and the book of Genesis. So we're going to cover all of that. But before we do, let's get started with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 5 Thus I sought an answer to my question, what is the source of evil? But I sought it in an evil way, blind to the evil involved in my searching. Before my mind's eye I set the whole of creation, all things that can be seen therein, the sea, the earth, air, stars, trees, and mortal creatures, and indeed included whatever we do not see, such as the firmament of heaven, all angels too, and all the spiritual inhabitants to be found there. However, I continue to think of all these beings as though they were bodies in space, making your creation into one great mass, made up of distinct kinds of bodies, some real and some phantoms of my imagination, which I thought to be spiritual realities. I thought this mass was huge, though not as it really is, which I could not know, but as was convenient for my thought, though finite in every way. However, I imagine that you, O Lord, embraced and penetrated it all throughout, though infinite in every way, as though there were a sea that were everywhere, on all sides, through measureless space, a huge and boundless sea, containing within itself a sponge which itself was huge, though bounded. Such a sponge would obviously have been filled by that boundless sea. This is how I conceived of your creation, itself finite, but full of you who are the infinite one. And I said, Behold, God, and behold what God has created. See how he embraces and overflows them. 
Where then is evil? And where does it come from? And how did it creep into this? What is its root and its seed? Or does it have no being? Why, however, if it is nothing, do we fear and avoid it? Or if we fear it uselessly, then that fear is evil, goading and tormenting the soul uselessly. Indeed, in so much greater an evil to the degree that we have nothing to fear, but nonetheless continue in our fear. Thus, either there is evil that we fear, or else the fact that we fear is evil. Where does it come from, given that God, the good one, has created all these good things? Yes, he, the creator and chief good, created these lesser goods, and both the creator and creatures are good. What is the source of evil? Or was there some evil matter from which he made, formed, and ordered it, with something being left in it unconverted to the good? But why would he do that? Was he not strong enough, he who is almighty, to turn it about and change the whole so that no evil might remain in it? Finally, why would he make anything at all out of it rather than, by the same omnipotence, cause it not to come into existence at all? Or could it then exist against his will? Or if it existed from all eternity, why did he allow it to be this way for infinite ages of time in the past, being pleased to make something with it only after they passed? Or if he were suddenly pleased at last to do something with it, would not the Almighty have rather willed that this evil matter should not exist and that he alone should exist, the whole true sovereign and infinite good? Or if it was not good that he who was good should not also fashion and create something that was good, then having done away with and destroyed that evil matter, could he not form good matter from which he would then create all things? For he would not be almighty if he could not create something good without the assistance of some kind of matter that he had not himself created. I mulled over all these sorts of thoughts in my miserable heart, weighed down with gnawing cares lest I should die prior to discovering the truth. Nonetheless, the faith of your Christ, our Lord and Savior, professed in the Catholic Church, was filled in my heart, though still unformed on many points, and unsteady concerning the rule of doctrine. However, my mind did not entirely depart from it, but rather daily took it in more and more. Chapter 6 By this time I had also rejected the lying divinations and impious insanity of the astrologers. Let your own mercies out of the depths of my soul confess unto you for this too, O my God. For you, you altogether, yes, for who else calls us back from the death of all errors except for the life that cannot perish, and the wisdom that itself needs no light, but that which enlightens those minds that need it, by which the whole universe is directed, down to the rustling of the leaves of the trees." You made provisions for the obstinacy with which I struggled against Venetianus, a perceptive old man, and Nebridius, a young man with admirable talents. The former vehemently asserted, and the latter often said, though expressing some doubt himself, that there was no such art that could enable one to see things in the future. Rather, they said, men's conjectures were like a lottery, and out of the many things that they said would come to pass, some in fact did, though they who spoke such things did not actually have some kind of knowledge, but rather stumbled upon it merely because they spoke so often. At that time you provided me with a friend who was not careless in listening to the astrologers, though he had not developed skills in those arts, but, as I said, was a curious listener to their words. At the same time he knew something himself which he had heard from his father, though he was not certain how much it should overthrow his estimation of that art. This man, named Firminus, had received a liberal education and was well taught in rhetoric. He consulted me as someone very dear to him, asking me what, based on his so-called constellations, I thought about some of his affairs in which his worldly hopes had risen. But I, having now begun to incline toward Nebridius's opinion, 
did not altogether refuse to conjecture on the matter, and thus I told him what came into my unresolved mind. However, I added that I was now almost persuaded that these were merely empty and ridiculous follies. He told me that his father had been very curious about the books teaching this art and had a friend who just as earnestly was interested in them. Together they would study and confer concerning these matters, fanning the flames of their affections in these toys, so that they would observe the times when the brute animals breeding about their house gave birth, looking then to the relative position of the stars, so that they might thereby undertake new experimentation in this so-called art. He then said that his father told him that when his mother was about to give birth to him, Firminus, a maidservant of that friend of his father's, was also pregnant, a fact that could not evade her master, who exercised great care and the utmost diligence in marking the births even of the puppies born in his household. It happened that both children, the one for his wife and the other for the servant woman, were both delivered at the same moment, as the men most carefully observed the days, hours, and indeed the minutes themselves. Thus they were both born under exactly the same constellations, even to the minutest detail, one for his son and the other for the newborn slave. For as soon as the women went into labor, they each gave notice to each other what was going on in their houses and had messengers ready to send word to each other as soon as the birth had taken place, something both men easily were able to do. Thus the messengers of the respective parties met, he surmised, at such an equal distance from either house that neither of them could make out any difference in the position of the stars, nor on any other tiny point. Yet Firminus, born as the child of wealth in his parents' house, ran his course through the gilded paths of his life, increased in riches, and was raised to honors. By contrast, the slave continued to serve his masters without any relaxation of the yoke, as Firminus, who knew him, told me. Upon hearing these things, I believed them coming from the lips of someone who had such credibility. Thus all my resistance gave way, and first I strove to convince Firminus that he himself should give up that curiosity, telling him that if I were to make true predictions based on the constellation under which he were born, I would need to tell him about parents who were elevated among their neighbors, a noble family in its own city, high birth, good education, and liberal learning. But if that servant had come to me with the same star chart to have me say something about him, I would need to tell him, if I were to be truthful, that I saw the most abject of family lineages, slavish conditions, and everything else that was entirely opposed to what I would have said about Firminus. Thus, if I spoke the truth, I should speak differently to different men based on the same constellations. Or if I spoke the same to them, then I would speak falsely. Therefore, it was most certain that whatever was spoken truly after considering someone's constellations was not wrought by some art, rather by chance. And whatever was spoken falsely was not due to ignorance of that art, but rather by the deceptions of chance. Thus, ruminating by myself on these things, an opening was formed so that none of those fools who lived by such a trade, men whom I longed to attack and disdainfully refute, might try to convince me that Firminus had informed me falsely, or that his father had done so to him. I turned my thought to such cases of twins, who for the most part come out of the womb so closely to each other that the tiny interval of time, no matter how intensely nature would supposedly exercise its power during that span, cannot be noted by human observation or in any way expressed in the figures that the astrologers must inspect in order to make his true proclamations. But they cannot be true. For looking at the same figures, he would have been forced to make the same prediction concerning Esau and Jacob, two men who had lives that were quite different. Therefore, the astrologer would be forced to speak falsely, or if he wished to speak truly, then looking at the same figures, he must not give the same answer. Thus, he would speak the truth only by chance, 
not art. For while the astrologers and those who consult remain unaware of it, you, O Lord, most righteous ruler of the universe, by your hidden inspiration, make the listener hear what he should hear, according to the merits of men's souls, speaking out of the unsearchable depths of your just judgment. And let no man ask, what is this, or why that? Let him stay silent, for he is but a man. Chapter 7. Now then, O my helper, you had loosed these fetters, and I sought to know where evil came from, but I found no way forward in this search. However, you did not allow wavering thoughts to carry me away from the faith. I believed that you exist, that your substance is unchanging, that you take care of men and judge them, and that in Christ your Son, our Lord, and the Holy Scriptures, which the authority of your Catholic Church pressed upon me, you had placed the path of man's salvation to that life which is to be after this death. With all this safe and fixed in my mind, I anxiously sought to know where evil comes from. Oh, how great were the birth pangs tormenting my breast, and how I groaned, O oh my God! Yet even there your ears were open, and I did not know it. And when in silence I vehemently sought an answer, that silent grief in my soul was a powerful cry unto your mercy. You knew what I had suffered, while no man could be aware of this, for what passed onto my tongue from those depths and into the ears of my closest friends. Did the whole tumult of my soul pass thereby? But neither time nor words could suffice. But all of it went up to your hearing, all that roared from the groanings of my heart. And my desire was before you, though the light of my eyes was not with me. For that was within, whereas I was outside. Nor was that confined to some place, but I was intent upon things that are contained in space. Yet there I found no resting place, nor did they receive me, so that I could say, It is enough, it is well. But neither did they allow me to turn about so that I might find the place where it might indeed be truly well with me. For I was superior to these things, but inferior to you, and you are my true joy when I am subject to you, and you had subjected to me the things that are below me. And this was the right proportion and middle way of my safety, to remain in your image and by serving you to rule the body. But when I rose up proudly against you, running stubbornly against him with a thick bossed shield, even these inferior things were set above me and pressed down upon me. And nowhere could I find respite or some place to catch my breath. I saw them all around me, on all sides, in heaps and throngs, and in my thought images of them came to my mind, unsought as I would turn away from them to you, as though they were saying to me, Where are you going, O you who are unworthy and defiled? And all this had grown out of my wound, for you humble the proud like one who is wounded, and through my own inflammation was I separated from you. Yes, pride had even swollen my eyes shut. Okay, back at it. Still questioning evil. Still questioning the cause of evil, the source of evil. I guess in Augustine's experience, in his life experience, he's pretty sure that evil exists. There's not kind of a question there of whether or not evil exists, but where does it come from? What's going on here? So one of the things that he begins to talk about is the will, um, choosing evil. But he questions whether or not, or how this is possible. You know, how is it that we were given freedom, you know, to choose. But how is it that we choose evil or we're capable of choosing evil if God is omnipotent, if God is all-powerful? Um, why would he allow this? So maybe let's let's start there. I think that's, you know, that's often at the heart of the question of the problem of evil. If God is all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing, why does he permit us to choose evil, to commit evil, to commit sin? What I mean, yeah, thoughts here, Father Gregory. 
Yeah. So uh, this is kind of foundational or, or fundamental question because it gets at God's quote unquote motivation in creation. So God's not motivated by what considerations of optimization or maximization. God makes things that are good because he is good and he entrusts those things with their own kind of integrity, with their own way of being and doing. And then he abides by the terms of his creation. Uh, so he's not like he's responsible to his creation in the way that like we're responsible to other members of our family, but he's responsible to himself, like he's consistent. And as a result of which we expect a kind of coherence in the way that his plan works itself out. And so one of the kind of possibilities, I suppose, or eventualities in creating free creatures is the possibility that those free creatures would transgress the law. And that's what you see in evil, uh, in evil done specifically, not just in evil suffered. And here, you know, St. Augustine goes on to describe how he's trying to sort through evil, but he's thinking about it in the wrong way. And again, as we have made mention of at this point a couple of times, it's because he's thinking about it in kind of crass materialistic terms. And here you have one of the, <laughs> one of the sillier descriptions uh, on the basis of his Manichaean errors. And he can't come to a, a better understanding, as it were, of the nature of evil because he's picturing God kind of like mixed in amongst the things of creation as if God were a kind of sponge or like a kind of world soul who enters into an almost physical relationship. And so this will be a key Catholic teaching that St. Augustine will gradually learn and then apply in his life, namely that God is transcendent and in being transcendent, he's able to be most imminent to his creation. So it's in a certain sense being wholly other than his creation, whereby God is able to be so very uh, bound up with or involved in his creation, not getting mixed in the in the jumble of created things, but rather, you know, giving them their very being and their very acting and dwelling in them as in a temple, in the case of us and angels. Yeah, and it's important, or the issue or the reality of freedom, our free will is important, as Father Gregory was explaining, that the Christian life is about love, it's about charity, and we can't be forced to love. You know, that's that's a choice that's something we're invited into, but not forced and not manipulated into, and with any sort of freedom, there's also freedom not to choose or to choose other or to choose in a different way. So it's it's important also to affirm the reality or the necessity of our of our freedom if we're made to participate in God's life, which I guess, you know, evidence seems to support seems to support that with some strength and vigor. So we're going to continue the the question of evil isn't going to disappear. It's not going away. He hasn't resolved it yet as as we're reading and listening. So it's going to come back and it's going to continue to be something that we consider uh, as we work through book seven here. But the next thing that St. Augustine kind of takes up that St. Augustine faces is astrology. Uh, and he has this conversation with a friend, Ferminus, I've heard the name pronounced. You might have a different pronunciation, but that's what I'm going to say. So, and as, as we're reading through the chapters, there's this sort of conversation concerning the stars and the alignment of the constellations around the birth of Herminus and the birth of a slave and then questions of the birth of Esau and Jacob um, from you know from the scriptures and whether or not what the astrologers say has any veracity any truth to it um, Augustine thinks it doesn't because if you look at people born in the same time you know at the same time under the same alignment of the stars they can have very different outcomes of life and that so there is so there's no sort of rhyme or reason um using astrology to talk about essentially providence or or what plays out so there's some danger here in dive in and sort of ascribing to astrology and and the constellations and the alignment of the stars and augustine yeah tackles it a little bit but kind of proves it to be not that 
important or credible and pretty dangerous very quickly. So I don't know if thoughts, Father Gregory, about astrology. Do you, are you pro contra astrology? What's your, <laughs> where do you come yeah, down I'm, on I'm, the issue? I'm, I'm not for astrology. And it's fascinating. St. Augustine has already mentioned astrology now a couple of times. It came up, I think at the beginning of either book four or book five, where he was tempted by it. And then he was referred on to a kind of wise and learned man who served as proconsul at a certain time and place. I forgot his name, but I can look it up real quickly, or I can just move on because it's not terribly important. Uh, but that man said, yeah, it's just bogus. It's bunkum. And maybe the astrologers are going to get certain predictions right, but it's, as it were, by accident. Or it's because they're just doing science on whatever pertinent circumstances they actually have access to. They're attributing it to the stars, and that's just all smoke and mirrors. The name of that guy was... Helvius Vidicianus, and it's specifically his friend Nebridius who convinces him like, yeah, I went down that path. You don't want to go down that path. And on the one hand, you might think to yourself, I am not especially tempted by astrology, but many of our contemporaries are. Uh, if you go through you know, the streets of a major city, you'll see you know, palm reading or whatever magic ball or tarot cards or blah, 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 and this and such. Certainly there are cities where it's, it's more popular, like Louisiana, you know, New Orleans, I suppose you'd find more of it. Other cities where it's less popular. Uh, like Topeka, Kansas. But regardless, people want to have or exercise a certain control over their lives. They want to manipulate the outcome of their lives, or at the very least, they want to peer into the future with some certainty. And the reason for which is, I mean, it's plain, it's it's obvious. I mean, you want to, yeah, you want to take the reins of your life and you want to be able to ride your life through rather than feeling all the time, you know, shipwrecked and storm-tossed or whatever it is. And I think that that's an encouragement for us as Christians to, once again, abandon ourselves to divine providence with the confidence that God takes care of us. And I think that as St. Augustine struggles with his understanding of God and his understanding of providence, you see him tempted by these strange things because they hold out hope that you can know and that you can know with certainty, and therefore you can maybe control and manipulate. So it's fascinating that this has already come up a couple of times, um, and he's not done with it yet, so... Yeah, the, one of the things that St. Augustine points out in this, in these chapters uh, as he's considering astrology yet again or engaging with whatever, considering, I don't know, but um, is the comment that they're going to get some things right sometimes because they speak on everything all the time. So it's, you know, sort of by coincidence that, that yeah, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to seem like it's right at times, but if you actually kind of scratch the surface, it's, there's not much to behold, you know, it's, it's just random sort of coincidence and guesswork and attributing it to the constellations or whatever, you know, so um, not to put our, our stock in our hope into. So these chapters end with Augustine returning to a consideration yet again of, of evil. And this time he does so by, by thinking of, of evil, of turning from God, of choosing those things that are not God by using this sort of image of, of running from God. And I find this to be particularly evocative of Augustine's journey and probably many of ours, you know, this, we've talked a lot about Augustine searching about his investigations, his desire, his pursuit of wisdom and truth, and this sort of running to this and that place. And we've even covered, you know, how St. Augustine has traveled from this place to that place, from Tagus to Carthage, to Rome, to Milan, you know, he's, there's, there's a lot of movement, both spiritually and physically in Augustine's life. And ultimately, you know, we're, we're made to run to God, but there's this running from God, running, seeking happiness, fulfillment in sort of the wrong places. Yeah, it's the imagery is not lost. It's sort of like, oh yeah, that makes sense for him to begin to think in these terms. So I don't know if you have 
anything uh, that you want to share about yourself and your running, Father Gregory, or anybody else's, or, you know, St. Augustine's, the stage is yours. Well, thank you. I was hoping that I could have the stage at, you know, some point. Now, I um, I think it's it's interesting we talk often in conversations, you know, like among Christians, we'll, we'll talk often about progress or lack of progress or regress, as it were. But I think there's this really profound sense of motion being part and parcel of the Christian life. And you'll hear it say, like, you can't stand still in the Christian life. Um, you might not be making progress, but that typically signifies that you're trying to make progress. And in trying to make progress, you prevent yourself from, as it were, falling back into old sins and vices or old patterns of thought and desire, which prove destructive. But however you describe it, from whichever angle, I think it is true, it's true enough, that there isn't a state in which we can say, all right, I've I've come to know enough things about God, I've come to love enough things about God, so now I can rest on my laurels. Or, you know, now I can, I can just be here, you know, I can just rest here. While we yet have life within us, you know, before we die, it's for us to kind of have this clarion call of further up and further in, to be really passionate about coming to know God more perfectly and to love Him more ardently. And the alternative is just to be honest about the fact that we're terrified at the prospect that God could take away from us things that we love, that if we were to give him our whole heart, that would mean a significant change for our lives. And I think that's what you're seeing with St. Augustine. St. Thomas Aquinas asked the question whether God can be hated, and he says not in the strict sense because God is our good. He's the common good of the whole universe, and you can't really hate what so evidently causes your happiness. But he said God can be hated under a certain, what, Mm, formality, I suppose. It's like if you see God as the punisher of your sins, yeah, you can hate him. Or if you see God as the withholder of your earthly delights, then yeah, you can hate him. And I think that we're, we're getting an appreciation for that right now in the concrete circumstances of St. Augustine's life. Well, it's not going to go away either because we still have a bit before his conversion, his wrestling with evil, his wrestling with himself. So we're going to pick up with those themes again as we carry on through book seven next time. And in the meantime, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics. Mm-hmm.